as Roman told you, uh, we send out emails to kind of keep you up to date on what's happening. And if you read that, you know that today we're doing another one of our question and answer ser- sermons. Every now and then we pull together uh, questions that we were asked and questions that we come across in some of our reading that people are asking more generally. And uh, this morning we want to take a, another pass at some of those. So um, all three of us are going to take turns in doing that. We uh, just did this about a month ago. Uh, July 30 was the last time we did this. And so if uh, what we do this morning catches your interest and you didn't get to hear, hear that one, I invite you to go back and uh, listen to it. And we answered some other questions uh, back then. So um, also, if you have questions that occur to you uh, today or after today that you would like to hear us address in this format, we'd be happy to have those from you. Uh, because one of the, one of the tasks uh, as Christian leaders, as ministry leaders, is to pay attention to what's really going on in all of our everyday lives and the kinds of questions that we that we struggle with or that we wonder about. So, um, anyway, it's an opportunity for you to kind of feed into that uh, to that pipeline. So, let me uh, say a word of prayer. We'll ask the Lord to guide our conversation and our thoughts today, and then we'll dive in. Lord, we thank you for this opportunity to uh, reason together to sit together and to think about what it means to follow you in the face of the challenges in the world that we live in. We ask you for wisdom, we ask you for grace, we ask you for courage, and we ask you for the capacity to think clearly and to be able to to notice what you're saying, uh, not just this morning, but in the days to come as we seek to honor you in all things. In Jesus' name, amen, amen. Well, as I said, we're each gonna take turns uh, uh, doing, uh, answering different questions. So uh, my notes say that Jeremy is going to, is up to bat first. So uh, the first question we want to start with is how can the Bible be trusted? So how can the Bible be trusted? Well, thank you for answering the question, whoever asked the question, because I think in the world we live in today, trust is easily lost and difficult to gain. And so I want to tell you why I trust the Bible, but I think this question has been with me for a long time. I remember when I was a kid in school and it seemed to me like I would hear other kids say, I don't believe the Bible, I don't believe in God. Um, In the first Q&A sermon that Pastor Carl referenced, Pastor Josh did a great job of answering the question of, is God real, how we know God is real. And so I'm not going to tackle that part of the question that I heard as a young person, but uh, I'm going to encourage you to go back and watch that other Q&A sermon if you want to get that. So what about the Bible? How can we trust the Bible? Well, let me first say the Bible isn't the thing that we worship. Sometimes I think we get this mindset that the Bible is something that we, we worship, but we don't worship the Bible the way that we would worship God. We, the Bible is something different. Scripture is the written word. It's an expression of God's intervention in human history, but it's Jesus that we worship. It's God that we follow, Jesus that we worship. We know from John chapter 1 that Jesus is God's word in human form, and he came to live among us. So we get our best understanding of God's character when we look at Jesus. But I understand why people would ask the question about being able to trust the Bible. It really helps me to remember that God's Word is bigger than any of us. It's been around for far longer than we have. And God can handle our questions and our doubts, even about Him, because He really is who He says He is. And He's really faithful to do what He says He's going to do. There's a verse that's always struck, uh, stuck with me about this topic, and it's from Proverbs chapter 30, verse 5. It says, God's word is tested 
It's true, and every word of God proves true, and he's a shield to those who take refuge in him. So on a surface level, when I read that verse, I'm encouraged to trust in the word of God because it's true, it's tested, and it's strong enough, too, to cover all of our questions and all of our spiritual needs. I've seen this. I've experienced it in my own life. Times when I've been depressed, times when I've felt directionless and I didn't know what to do, I found hope and power in the written word of God. There are a few scriptures that have been especially meaningful to me that I've taken the time to memorize, to pray through over and over again and dive deep into what those mean in my life. And as I pray through them, God works in me. He works in my mind and in my heart to transform me, bring me closer to God when I'm feeling far away. But if you want to talk about the mechanics of why we can trust the Bible that we have in our possession to read today, there are a couple of things that I would point out to you. People sometimes say, you know, I don't trust the Bible because it's been translated over and over. They think it's been changed and corrupted over time. But that's actually not how Scripture has been transmitted to us in the modern day. It's not how it came to us over the years. It hasn't been translated from one thing to the next thing to the next thing to the next thing. Much as if you would go to Google Translate and put something in and then translate it ten times, it would come out a little weird at the end. That's not the way the Bible works. Um, There's two things I want to point out to you that you may or may not have heard before. One is that in the Old Testament times, ancient Jewish scribes had this sacred duty to copy Scripture so that it was available for other people to read. And so when these Jewish scribes would do that, their sacred duty to copy the Torah, they would have to do that one letter at a time. They would copy one letter to the new page. And then they would check it, and they'd go back and do the next letter. And then they, they would recheck every single letter that they copy. And then they would recheck every single word that they copy. And then every single line that they copy. And along the way, if any mistake was found, that entire copy was thrown out. It was destroyed. It was no good. And so they would get rid of it, and they would start again so that it was done with the utmost precision and accuracy. And that always has stuck with me when I heard that explanation, because I can know that this duty was so sacred to them that if there was any small mistake that that was gotten rid of, they did not want to pass on a mistake to other people who might misunderstand something that the scripture would say. The translations that we use today, like the New International Version or the New Living Translation, these are translations that have been made for us by language experts and Bible scholars um, from the oldest, most reliable sources that we have in order to keep them consistent over time. Many of the New Testament books that we read are translated from text that is within one generation of the original writing, the original pen to paper. And we have sometimes hundreds or thousands of copies of those early manuscripts to check for accuracy. So if you compare that to somebody like Plato or Aristotle, we know those Greek philosopher names, nobody questions that they wrote what we think they wrote, but we only have a tiny fraction of manuscripts for them, whereas we have hundreds and thousands of manuscripts of New Testament writings. Now this is a really big picture view of the whole translation question, but, this, but it helps me to know these things so that I can be comfortable believing that the scripture I read today is a direct translation of trustworthy sources. So as a Christian in the year 2023, my role is to take the principles of what these scriptures say and apply them to my life so that I can truly know God and share him with others. My Uh, For me, the question of trusting the Bible is settled, but the question I continually ask myself is, am I living out 
the word of God? Do I look like Jesus to people? Because as the saying goes, you may be the only Bible that some people ever read. Very good. Thank you. Thank you. Um, Josh, you're going to take our next question. And the next question is, does God text us? Wait. Does God test us? Right, sorry. (laughs) Yeah, test us. I think he can heavenly uh, text us too. (laughs) That's good. Uh, Yeah, uh, like I would say yes. Um, This is something that as believers, I think sometimes can be a struggle for us because when he tests us, uh, sometimes it can be painful. And sometimes it's not always exactly what we want. Um, the Bible is filled with stories of God testing individuals and even nations. Uh, a couple of, to make mention here today, of course, is in Genesis 1 uh, and, and through 3, where we see Adam and Eve come into existence, and God sets them in this beautiful garden, um, if you're familiar with the story, and he says there's one place in the garden not to go. And one day, Eve is strolling through the garden, and there's Satan, uh, and he tempts Eve with this fruit, and she eats of it. And then we know kind of the rest of the story that she'll go on then to give the fruit to Adam, and they fall short. There's a test there. God said, don't do this one thing, and they do it anyway. Uh, Another one that comes to my mind, and and this is more of like, I would say, um, the enemy testing uh, Jesus in this moment, but also God kind of coming in and, and being with Jesus. We see Jesus in the wilderness uh, for 40 days, and, um, and if you're familiar with that story, the enemy comes in and he tests Jesus, right? He, he asks Jesus all these questions. Don't you want to be king over the world? I'll give you everything, and Jesus resists the enemy, and, um, and that's kind of a positive outlook in that story. James 1.3, um, I, I love this scripture. It says, for you now that when your faith is tested, your endurance has a chance to grow. I think when God tests us, it's not a malicious test. It's not to cause harm to us. It's to cause our faith to grow. Um, I can personally say examples in my life of where God tests me in different aspects that out of those tests, sometimes I failed them, but sometimes I passed them, and I can say my faith grew in that experience. First Peter 1, 6 through 7 says, so be truly glad. There is wonderful joy ahead, even though you must endure many trials for a little while. These trials will show that your faith is genuine. And watch this. It is being tested as fire tests and purifies gold. Though your faith is far more precious than gold, so when your faith remains strong through many trials, it will bring you much praise and glory and honor on the day when Jesus Christ is revealed to the world. So that scripture alone says, hey, we're going to be tested, right? There's going to be trials as believers that we go through. And sometimes, again, I think God test that which he loves, right? And he deeply loves us as human beings and as people who have come into knowing him. Like he, he loves us that much. He wants to test us. But it also, I think testing helps us to grow stronger. It helps us to grow deeper. Um, and so I would encourage you, if you're going through a, a test today that maybe you discern and feel is from the Lord, 
Don't put it off. Don't be like, God, why am I going through this? This is terrible. Say, God, give me strength to endure this that when I come out, I'm fine like gold and that my faith is refined uh, and is strong. And so again, we could sit here, I think, for a while and talk about all the different stories in the Bible. I think the, the Bible is filled with stories of when God tested people and even nations, but those are just a couple Example. That's a follow <clears throat> follow up question. It occurs to me as you're talking about saying that um, is how important do you think it is for me to decide if I'm having a difficulty in my life that I've, I'm experiencing as challenging or testing? How important is it to me? To, do you think it is for me to decide whether that's of God or whether it's not of God? Yeah, um, coming from some other source. Right. No, that's great. Great question. I think it's it's and this goes to partnership with the Holy Spirit and discerning and hearing the voice of the Lord and deciding, okay, is this just a random happening, right? Like, because we all know life happens and sometimes bad things happen to good people. And so I think it is important to ask the Lord, God, are you trying to take me through something to refine me? Or is this just like a happening? Or is it the enemy? Is the enemy coming against my life in such a way that's causing harm? And if so, God, would you send protection for me? Would you help me yeah. through this? Yeah, I guess also I was just thinking that when I asked the question that I think that regardless what the source is, a lot of times what's asked of us is the same thing. So, yeah. you know, faithfulness to the Lord or being shaped by it in right. some constructive way is, I think, yeah. part, of the, part of the challenge there. So, yeah. That's good. All right, it's Carl's turn to come up to bat. You ready for a tough one? No, go ahead. Okay. <laughs> All right, so this is, uh, the next question is, how can there be a good God when there is so much evil and suffering in the world? So you took us seriously when you invited us, when we invited you to ask questions. Uh, As we said a month ago, uh, some of these questions people have written whole books about. In fact, this one, um, probably the most helpful book that I've come across on this question is a book called How Long, O Lord by D.A. Carson. It's, uh, it, it's a little challenging to read, but it's well worth the effort if you're somebody who uh, is up to that challenge. But um, just to show you that people do write whole books about some of these and answer some of these questions. Um, this question of uh, how can there be a good God when there's so much evil and suffering in the world reminds me of a related question that I think is important to keep in mind as well, which is uh, sometimes people ask, did God create evil? Like, how did it get here? Uh, Did God create it? Um, The short answer to that question, I think, is very clear throughout the the scriptures, which is no, God did not create evil. But its existence uh, raises a a question that we, we don't have a complete answer to, which is why would there be evil in the world then? If we know that God is good, that God's creation was good, how did evil get in or where does it come from? Um, I mean, clearly God allows it, has allowed it to be part of our experience in the story Josh just pointed to from Genesis 3, where um, Adam and Eve are in the garden, uh, so on. The, the, devil, the devil, the tempter, is just there. Uh, there isn't really any detail about how he got there or why he's there. He's just there, and he's interacting with Eve, and, you know, that kind of starts a whole different story. Um, so, it's clear that God has allowed evil to be in his, cre- his good creation um, as, as a kind of a challenge. Um, ultimately, however, it's important to remember that it's not a true threat to God or a true threat to God's ultimate purposes. So dualism in philosophy is the notion that good and evil are, are equal and opposed forces that are kind of struggling and, and fighting throughout history, and we're not really quite sure which one is going to win. Well, 
according to the, the story the Bible tells, you don't have to wonder about which one is going to win. Right. Good is going to win. Good is going to win. The idea, though, is that God has allowed evil, Satan as a person, personal being of evil, to be in the world to create the kind of challenges that Josh uh, was talking about a, little, a moment ago. Mm-hmm. So I think probably the best short answer to this question about how can there be a good God when there's so much evil and suffering is that uh, it's, it's part of God wanting to give us a genuinely free choice to follow him a genuinely free choice to accept or choose for his goodness and his love. Um, in the absence of some kind of alternative, that really wouldn't be a choice. Hmm. If there were no other option in the world, um, we would just be overwhelmed by the goodness and the love of God. Hmm. And nobody would ever choose against that if, it, you know, if there were no other option. Um, I also think, by the way, that that's why God is not more obvious in the world. Mm. I know sometimes people say, well, why, if God is there, why isn't he more obvious? I think that this is part of it. I think it's mm. because if God were more obvious, there wouldn't, it would reduce our ability to choose for or against who, who God right. is. Um, I think, though, the real question that we're often asking when, when we ask this question, why is, how can God be good when there's so much evil and suffering? I think the underlying question we wonder is, why doesn't God intervene when someone is going to do real harm? That's really, I think, at the underlying. And I, I wonder that myself sometimes when I think about certain, you know, huge atrocities. I think, Lord, how, yeah. how can that possibly be a good, you know, not a good thing, but how can it be allowed? Because I think you and I imagine that we would intervene if we knew that something <laughs> truly harmful was going to happen. Um, so, yes, God could stop a drunk driver from causing a car accident. Yes, God could stop a construction worker from doing a bad work on a house that's going to cause headache and possibly damage to the mm. lives of the people who live in that building. Yes, God could stop a father who's addicted to drugs or alcohol from uh, harming his family and so on. Why doesn't God do that? Well, I, two things I can think of. One is it would interfere with free will. And, and C.S. Lewis talks about fr- um, evil as the price of free will in the world. Mm. It's, a, it's one way to think about it. Uh, the, the, other, the other reason, though, I think God doesn't intervene is that it's not clear where God would stop. Hmm. Like, how, how bad would something have to be for God to intervene to stop it? Um, I, I think that we would also maybe change our minds about this if God inter- intervened and stopped us from doing something we really wanted to do, <laughs> even, even if it was harmful. And the other thing I think we don't realize is that uh, a lot of times big evil doesn't start out as big evil. It starts mm-hmm. out as small evil that somebody gets used to. Right. And then it becomes a little bigger evil. They get a little used to that. And you've probably seen this in your own life. If you tell a small lie, the first time you do it, you probably break out into a sweat. Your face turns red and you think, oh man, I hope I get away with that. But I'll never ever do that again. But then you get away with it. And the next time... It's just a little easier to tell a lie. This is a little bit bigger. And so you start down this pathway. And if you don't, if, if, that's a, if that doesn't get interrupted, you end up telling some whoppers and you end up believing that everybody around you is lying because you know you're lying. And so you're convinced that other people are lying and so on. Mm-hmm. So at what point in that process would God stop you from doing that against your will in a way that wouldn't interfere with your free will to choose goodness or not? I also want to say, uh, again, we only have a moment to answer this question. The other thing I want to end with, though, is that I think the, the goodness of God shines through in spite of the pain and the suffering in our worlds. Mm. The goodness of God shines through. There's a goodness at the heart of our, 
of the created world that we're part of. And I think it's part of why you and I want to be seen as good people no matter how bad we are. Have you ever thought about that? C.S. Lewis talks about this in his writings. We all have a moral impulse to the good. So even the most uh, person who commits the most heinous crime, most of them won't say, oh, I'm a terrible person. Most of them say, well, here's why I did that. And they'll have a reason that explains it to themselves or explains it to you. And uh, I've heard people say that there, there are never so many innocent people as, as in the prisons. People are convinced of their innocence. And I think you and I understand that. Um, this impulse, this desire to be good, lining up with the goodness of God's creation as described in Genesis 1. The other thing about the goodness of God shining through nonetheless is to understand that the God that we worship entered our world and experienced pain and suffering along with us. He has borne the, the burden of what that means. In the incarnation, the life, the death, the resurrection of our Lord Jesus, God himself has shared the, the burden of that suffering with us and I think shows us his goodness by coming to stand with us in the context of this world that, that he has created. And finally, we have the promise that at the end of the age, God will bring all things to a just and proper end. I think that's another way that we're gonna see the goodness of God if we will trust in it in the meantime. So, like I said, a whole book can be written, has been written. Uh, that's, what, that's what I think is helpful for the moment. Well, so. well just to follow up on that, I, you know, I think this is a top 10 question in the world today. Uh, that's why I said to you it's a really yep. big question when we started yep. because uh, I've heard this question so many times and especially from people who haven't, seen their way to understanding God on a personal level or having a personal relationship with with him, all they see is that we're never short on suffering in the world. There's never a lack of it. And because of the immediate nature of online information and social media, a lot of times we get to experience that suffering in real time along with the people who are experiencing it. So now we know more about what the suffering looks like in other parts of the world than we may have ever known before. So if someone was asking me this question, how can there be a good God when there's so much evil and suffering in the world? The first thing I would not do is I would not minimize the existence of evil and suffering in the world by saying something like it's part of God's plan. And Carl talked about the fact that, that God didn't create evil. You know, God isn't a puppet master. He's not controlling everything, everyone's decisions and every person's actions. Uh, so it doesn't make any sense for us to attribute the evil and suffering in the world to God. Uh, God actually tells us that evil and suffering are things that we're going to have to experience. Jesus said you're going to hear of wars and rumors of wars before the end of the world. He also said in John 16 that in this world you will have trouble. I don't know if you remember that verse, but it always sticks with me. In this world you will have trouble. He never said we would have a life free of pain and suffering. And if anyone promised you that following Jesus was free of pain and suffering, they were wrong because that's not what he says. But do you remember what else he said? He said, you will have trouble, but I give you my peace. Take heart, he said, I have overcome the world. See, the proof of God doesn't come from a lack of evil in the world. I believe that the proof that God is good comes from his power to overcome evil. The victory over evil starts in each one of us when we surrender to him and give him control of our lives. Becoming what like Christ is what turns our habits and our desires from evil into what is good. And if we want that, if we really want that for us and for our families and for our neighbors and for our community and our country and our world, 
then we have to take personal responsibility for walking with Jesus. You are the church. I am the church. We are the church. We carry the light of God into the world. If you and I together grab on tight to the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives, then we can become an example of God's goodness to everyone around us. And then that example can become a movement that changes whole communities and whole generations with God's goodness. So today, if you struggle at all to believe that God is good, then I ask you to make a decision to surrender to him and trust him for his good work in you. Our next question, uh, rather, I would say difficult one, but one that many people are asking is, uh, what does God think about transgenderism? (laughs) Carl's first. Yeah. All right. It sounds like I feel like I'm batting cleanup here. Um, what does God think about transgenderism? I, I think that's actually a very interesting way to ask that question. Uh, there are a number of different ways you could ask, we could ask about this topic. Uh, that, I think, is an interesting way to ask about it because the Bible doesn't tell us directly what God thinks about transgenderism. There isn't a specific you know, passage of the Bible that talks about this. Mm-hmm. Um, and we don't have a direct, uh, like an update, a direct revelation kind of update from God that answers a question like this. So any of us who answers this question is... Uh, is doing so based on wisdom and on reason, where we're looking at what we understand God's, the teachings of Jesus and so on, and we're trying to say which parts of what Jesus did and said and who he was is most applicable to answering a question like this. So this is really a, a wisdom question um, that you know, takes us back to bigger picture underlying questions that helps us to answer a specific one like this. Um, but the main issue at the heart of transgenderism is uh, what do you do when your mind and your body don't agree about whether you're male or female, about whether you're a man or a woman. What do you do when your mind and your body don't agree with that? So if I'm in a man's body and my mind is telling me that I'm, I'm a woman, but I look, look at myself and I experience my body as male, what do I do with that? How, how, do, I, how do I navigate that? And so I think one of the things to bear in mind, if this is not your experience, is, um, is, I hope, a call to be compassionate to someone who struggles with that question because it's, as I understand it, is a very, it's a painfully confusing question if it's something that you wrestle with, you know, at your deepest core. And so um, I would say that one of the things that God thinks about transgenderism is I would assume a compassion for somebody who's in that kind of struggle. And so then in our time, what we have is people disagreeing about how to resolve that tension. So if my mind and my body don't agree with each other, which one should I try to change? If my body is male, should I try to change my mind to say, no, mind, you are confused. You really are a man. Or if my mind is telling me I'm a woman, should I try to change my body to line up with what my mind is thinking? And so one of the things I would encourage those of you who don't uh, walk this journey is if you have someone tell, you meet someone who uh, it tells you that they're trans or non-binary would be to ask them what they mean by that. Mm-hmm. My understanding is that almost everybody's journey with this is unique. And so how people attempt to resolve that confusion or that dissonance, if you will, is going to be different. And it may not be as drastic as you imagine it to be. 
Um, so I would just say, you know, keep that in mind as you uh, encounter this question. I think that under, th- there are three underlying, like, big picture questions that will point us to answering this specific one. Mm-hmm. Uh, the first one is, what does God think about any human being? So if you're asking, if the question is, what does God think of a transgender person? I think one of the first questions is, well, what does God think of any person? Because this, a transgender person is a person created in the image of God, reflecting the image of God. And the scriptures are very clear. And if you want to see this in John 3, John chapter 3, John chapter 15, God's love is incredible for for humankind, for every one of us. Um, regardless of who we are, regardless of what our challenges are, God loves us. God wants to be in intimate relationship with us. God wants us to know him better, and God wants to live within us and walk with us. And God has gone to incredible lengths, if you know the gospel story, to make that possible. God has gone to incredible lengths, incredible sacrifices to himself to make it possible to have a relationship with you no matter what you're confused about or what you're struggling with, what pain there is in your life. So that's the first question. question. The other is, why is it important, or how important is it that God created us in human, in physical bodies? How important are our bodies Hmm. in the fact that, in in how we were created? I I heard a speaker recently talking about this, and he pointed out something that I had never considered before. If you look at the creation account in Genesis 2, it says that God created Adam as a body first, and then God breathed his life into Adam and brought him to life. And so what the speaker said is realize that what that means is that Adam is animated flesh. In other words, Adam was flesh first and he was brought to life. He was animated by God's breath. He wasn't a created as, he's not an imprisoned soul. Mm. In other words, he's not a soul who's trapped in a body. It's inconvenient for his, you know, his real person, his real soul to be trapped in this body. No, God didn't create a, um, a soul and then look for a container, a physical container to put him in. God created the body first and then breathed his life into the body, which I think was just really interesting, but also I think highlights the importance of our bodies and the fact that we are, uh, what you've have probably sometimes heard, embodied spirits. Hmm. Our spirits and our bodies are inextricably bound together such that in, uh, after Jesus' resurrection, he's still in a body as a, resurrection, as a resurrected person. He's in a glorified body. It's changed. And so our understanding is that we will, in, in eternity, will live in glorified, tra- changed bodies in some way, but we will still be in bodies. So the, the, the question, second question, how important is it that God created us in, in bodies or created our bodies? It's, it, the Christian answer, the theological answer is very important. That's a very important part of who we are. And the third question, why did God create us male and female? Why did God create, it's very interesting, why did God create two different types of human beings and say, you're both in my image. Together you're in my image and and, and individually you are in my image. You express my image in the world. It's not something that we fully understand. But when we look at the creation account, especially in Genesis 1, you see that what God does there is he creates he, he separates two things that, and makes them different, but then he, he uni- unifies them or unites them in how they function. So you have light and dark. God creates light and darkness. He separates those two, but then he harmonizes them. They work together. He creates uh, the land above or the, the water above and the water below. He separates them, but then he unifies them or harmonizes them in their function and their purpose. He creates land and sea and so on. And then he creates 
humankind, the male and female, separate two distinct types that are harmonized by how they work together, unifies them by how they work together. So I think it's, it's very important that God has created us in bodies and also male and female. If you were here in 2016, you may remember uh, we did a book study on the book Redeeming Sex by Deborah Hirsch. She gave us some language there that I find, continue to find very helpful. She distinguished between our position and our posture. Our position we talked about was our convictions or our beliefs about what's true. So I would say that on this matter, our position would be that um, God loves every person no matter who they are. It's very important that God created us in, in bodily form, you know, created us our bodies. And thirdly, um, that our maleness and femaleness is very important too, that there's something about that that expresses the nature of God in distinct ways. So that's a position that we would have, but our posture... Our posture would be one of, of hospitality and grace for people who uh, disagree with our position or for people who see it differently, what have you. So our primary call, I think, once we have our position well in mind, is to think about that, how do we behave in the world? How do we function based on that posture? And I would suggest to you that on this topic, uh, God's call to us is to treat everyone we encounter with those those questions in mind to treat them with uh, respect and with God's love, regardless of their experience, regardless of, of their journey in the world. They are God's image in the world. Um, so I would encourage you, as I did a moment ago, to listen with compassion to the unique story of the person you encounter or the parent of someone or the, uh, or the relative of someone who's walking this journey. Because um, many people who are experiencing this are in a in a very confused and diff, it's a very challenging part of their life. And so you may know that uh, rates of mental illness, uh, anxiety, depression, and even suicide are much higher among the transgender population. And I think that should break our hearts um, if, uh, if you know about that. So, and as I said before, there, uh, you know, these questions, whole books have been written. One of the best books on this particular topic, if you want to do more reading, is uh, the book Embodied by Preston, Spr- Preston Sprinkle. Um, writes a lot on issues, contemporary issues having to do with human sexuality from a very solid biblical framework. So he's an author that I would commend to you, and I have the books with me if you want to look at them or take a photo of them afterwards. Um, but that's, that's how I would reflect on transgenderism. I, I think, Carl, what you just said is absolutely true, and so I don't have a lot to add to it. I, I think it's clear in Genesis that we see God did create male and female, um, so that position is true. That's one that I personally hold uh, to, uh, and that's his original design for us. But with that being said, I don't always fully understand why some people decide in their minds, well, I'm trapped in this body, and I don't feel right in this body. And so I want to give a story. When I lived in Florida, uh, I was a manager at Target, and one of uh, the employees I worked with she uh, was a lesbian, and, and she knew I was a, I was a pastor because I was uh, like a volunteer pastor at that time. And so we, we had some talks about that, and throughout this entire process, I just befriended her and got to know her life a little bit, understood some of the, the brokenness in her life. So I moved on from Target, and we continued to follow each other on social media, and I found out that she had gone through the entire process of becoming a man. Um, I mean, you name it, the medical procedures to the counseling to retrain her brain, everything. 
And I'll never forget it. Uh, about two years had passed, and out of the blue, uh, she messaged me on um, Facebook and said, hey, I really feel like I need to come to church. Would there be a seat for me? And it just so happened to be Easter Sunday, and I'll never forget it. Um, she came with her girlfriend. They sat in the front row. I saved them a seat. And that Sunday, both of them gave their lives to Jesus. The, the power in this story, though, is that that moment, uh, from that moment on, she didn't decide, oh, I need to transition back. She continued to be a man and is still a man to this day. But what I watched in her life was something powerful. She went to discipleship classes. In fact, her and her girlfriend were living together at the time, and they felt conviction from the Holy Spirit about living together. And so they separated from living together, and they said they wanted to do it the right way. And um, I remember sitting across from her in a coffee shop having many deep discussions, and I told her flat out, hey, this is what I believe. I believe there is male and there is female. I don't understand why you came to this decision, but that doesn't mean that I don't love you any less. And I think when we encounter people who are in this kind of struggle, the last thing to do is to say, well, they're an abomination and we're going to reject them, right? Because God deeply loves them and God was moving in this person's life. In fact, uh, she would go on to be a greeter at our church, one of, one of the best greeters we had. And um, and so am I to say because she's, she transitioned her body that the work of Jesus in her life is not real? No. The work of Jesus in her life was very real. It's very powerful. And, it, and to this day, is, they're still following Jesus. Did she transition back? No. Will she ever transition back? I don't know. That's not for me to decide. The moment that I become the voice of conviction for someone is that I no longer uh, trust the Holy Spirit enough to yeah. be conviction yeah. in their life. Hmm. And I think in this world as believers, a lot of time we, we think we need to be the voice of conviction, especially when it comes to this issue, and we don't. Yeah. Should, th- should we dilute truth? No, absolutely not. We should preach truth. We're ambassadors of truth. But we should trust the Holy Spirit enough to be conviction in their life. And, and maybe one day, my prayer is that maybe one day she'll come to her senses and she'll realize, okay, maybe I need to transition back. But if she doesn't, that doesn't mean I don't love her any less. She's still a close friend. I still keep in contact uh, with her. Well, and I, I think that illustrates how complicated this stuff is. Uh, it's, it's a whole new area for most of us to be thinking about. And yeah. uh, the answers are not not. And you're right, Joshua. I mean, we are called to speak the truth, but then the scripture says, speak the truth in love. Correct. Right? And so sometimes we think those things are opposed to each other. We think, okay, I can give you the truth or I can be loving and just accept whatever you say. And that's, it's not a dichotomy. It's not all one way or all the other. We can carry the truth and speak the truth and do it in a loving way. See, all I really want to add to this question is what I preached in a recent sermon, that I believe that we who bear the name of Jesus have a responsibility to love people. You know, in the past, people who wrestled with gender identity questions may not have been as open about it as what we see happening today. And I think that's a great opportunity for us as children of God to be open to sharing life and genuine Holy Spirit-powered love with people. Because when someone is going to be open about what they're dealing with in their life, that's a huge opportunity for us to give love and response. We have the choice about how we're going to respond. We're not going to ever be able to answer all the questions out there about 
what someone might be thinking or why they feel this way or what they should do. But if we can consistently point to Christ in the way that we love them, that's the best thing that we can do in response. Because how will someone ever trust Christ if the love that we show to that person is conditional? If it says you have to think this way or look this way or act this way before I'll love you, what does that say about the love of God? We have to instead give away the love and the grace that was so freely given to us and continue to pray that people will come to know what the love of God really looks like. That's great. That's probably enough for one day, huh? <laughs> we can yeah. play stump the pastor. Well, we're at, yeah, let's, <laughs> let's do that next week. Uh, yeah, I think we're at time. Um, I hope that was as helpful to you. Um, it was recorded, so if you want to listen more carefully to some of what we said, you're welcome to. Or you can always share it with your friends. Yeah, well, you can do that. Pass it along if it's helpful. Um, and like I said at the beginning, if you have questions like this that you'd like to hear us tackle in the future, please let us know. We'd be happy to do that. Let me close this moment in prayer. Lord, thank you for your presence with us this day and in the time of preparation for answering these questions. I thank you for your presence and your work in the world. And I pray that you would continue to develop our sensitivity to how you are at work to where you're at work, and as Josh said, to, um, to follow your prompting, to follow your leading, not to take over your job, uh, not to feel like it's on us to, uh, to sort things out necessarily, but to uh, represent you well in the situations and the conversations we're part of. Lord, I, I hope that uh, our time together and as we think together about how to engage these questions, I, I hope it uh, enlarges our capacity to love like you love, which is so challenging sometimes. Lord, we ask you for your capacity to do that, to be the kind of blend of grace and truth that we saw in Jesus, fully, fully uh, committed to the truth and unashamed about it, but also fully, fully flowing in your grace and your love for other people. May that be true of us. And as we uh, sang in our song of worship, may you be magnified us in this way that we might be a source of light and hope to the people around us, we pray. We ask all of these things of you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Amen.